So we've been looking at Luke. We're looking at Luke again today. And as we look at Luke, what we've been trying to do is understand what makes Luke distinct from the other Gospels. And the reason I've put this map up here is to show us the difference between Antioch and Jerusalem. The early church historians and the early church records record that Luke was from Antioch. Now Matthew, Mark, and John were not. Mark we're not sure about, but to the extent that Mark was writing Peter's gospel, we certainly know that Matthew and Peter and John were from what we would today call Israel. They were from the area of the Jewish holy lands, the Jewish homelands. Not so for Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke, the early church says, hailed from Antioch. Luke doesn't tell us in the Bible where he came from, though it is interesting to read through his second volume, the book of Acts, and see how often he gives very personal details about Antioch. Antioch is mentioned more in Luke's writings than all the rest of the Bible put together, which I guess is only fair since it wasn't a city at the time of the Old Testament. But be that as it may, um, it, it's still it's something that Luke pays a lot of special attention to. You can go back to Antioch. Antioch is just barely in Turkey. It's over near the Syrian border. Not a real safe place to be in the world today, but if you want to go, you can still see remains of the Roman roads that Luke and Paul and Mark and Barnabas and Peter and others would have walked down. And it's an amazing part of history. Now, what I'd like for us to do this morning, and again, if you start hearing some of this saying, he's not talking about the Bible. Yes, I am. Just bear with me for a few moments because there's some stuff in a New Testament survey class at a seminary that you would get tested on. And I'm going to put it in here. And then you're going to get tested on it at lunch by your wife. So you better pay attention. All right, let's put up a Google map. This is Europe and the Middle East and a little bit of Asia. And if you'll see, I've put a, an oval circle around an area that I've labeled Indo-European. Indo-European. And actually, for that label, it should say European Indo. But, but it's not. People say Indo-European. Indo is a reference to India. But it's on that side of the map. European is a reference to Europe. It's on this side of the map. Let's do it this way. All of us who speak English, Spanish... Portuguese, Italian, Romanian, we speak Indo-European languages. We speak languages that have evolved from the Indo-European dialects. Here's what linguists would tell you about it. If we go back, and some of this is theory, okay, because we don't have writings that go back this far. I'll plug in the writings in a minute. But if we go to about 4000 B.C., in that little area between the Caspian and the Black Sea, 4000 B.C. seems to be the birthplace of Indo-European languages. And from that area, those peoples spread out. So that by 2000 B.C., you've got Indo-European languages being spoken 
in those areas that I've done. You've got a little bit of Greece and Macedonia. You've got some of, of, uh, uh, of uh, Turkey, a little bit of Iran. You go across the Caspian Sea into those countries that have different names now that the Soviet Union's no longer there and my geography is useless. Um, but, but that's the growth of Indo-European languages. And then from there, it grows where by 1500 BC, it stretches all the way up into Gaul or Germany. It comes down into Greece. It comes over into all of Turkey, comes down into Iran, all the way over into India. By 1500 BC, you've got three main Indo-European languages that we have records of today. You've got Greek, you've got Sanskrit over in India, and you've got Hittite, which is being spoken in Turkey. But all of them have the same family of languages. And they all came from the same tree. We still, you can take those trees all the way down today. It continued to spread to envelop into Italy. And the Etruscans took it. And Latin took it. So you can hear the word father and it's so similar in all of the Indo-European languages. Whether it's pater in the Greek, all the way to father in English. And so you've got this all the way down. And, and, and it's amazing how you can link languages. Now, let's get a little more specific and fo- focus in for a moment. If you go into this area where we see Italy as the boot, Greece, Turkey, and you've even got Israel down here on the right, and a little bit of the Egyptian delta is showing there, the Nile Delta. If we look, the oldest Greek writing we have is from somewhere between... 1400 and 1100 BC. It's called Linear B writing. And here's a sample Linear B tablet. And if you're looking at those letters and trying to figure out where the fraternity or sorority letters you're most familiar with fit, you won't find them. Because Linear B was a writing script for the Greek language, but it's not one that's even remotely close to the Greek writing script of today. Even the language, modern Greek, is closer to ancient Greek of 1500 B.C. than the alphabet is. Let me tell you what happened. We don't know. (laughs) But here's what we do know. You have a gap of about 400 years where we can't, archaeologists haven't found any Greek writings. By the time they find Greek writings again, it's what's called epic Greek or archaic Greek. It's from about 800 to 500 BC. Since the time of Linear B, if you look at the Greek there, those letters start making sense. You can find Kappa Kappa Gamma. You can find Delta, Delta, Delta. You can find Sigma, Phi, Epsilon. I wasn't in a fraternity, I don't know, but I would drive down Greek Road to study for my exams in Greek class. (laughs) Figuring if I could identify all of the different shirts everybody was wearing, I was ready to take the test. So you've got the Greek alphabet there. You've got Greek writings And this was epic Greek. This was Greek language, some scholars say, when it hit its pinnacle. When it was the most beautiful and pristine and marvelous. As a person with a degree in Greek, I will tell you this is when it was at its worst. 
there were over 1,100 verb forms at this point in time. We have like 22 in English. 1,100 verb forms. Memorize that one. But that's the language. This was a classical Greek. Now, it had different tongues and dialects that were used uh, uh, in different types of writings as much as used in different areas. But it was a majestic Greek language. It was formal. It was structured. It had majesty. Then along comes this student of Aristotle's. His name? Alexander the Great. Actually, he was just Alexander when a student of Aristotle's. He became great afterwards. He conquered the world all the way to India. And he took the Greek language with him. Now the problem was, when he conquered the world, not everybody spoke such marvelous Greek. Some people spoke a more common Greek. It became known as Hellenistic Greek or Koine Greek. It's an everyday Greek. It's the difference between someone saying, um, uh, Thou shalt go forth, and saying, Get out of here. It's the difference between saying, Let us go consume some tasty delicacies, and let's go eat. In Lubbock, by the way, that's one word. It's spelled S-Q-U-E-E-T. Squeet. That, that is the closest I can come to telling the difference. Now, I had the pleasure, privilege, and persecution of studying both classical Greek and Koine Greek. Your Bible is written in Koine Greek. It's written in everyday Greek. It's written, it, it, if you want to read epic Greek, you can even read epic Greek in writers at the same time as the Bible. Plutarch, who wrote biographies of Roman emperors and other famous personages. Plutarch's born in 46, dies around 120 AD. Plutarch's Greek is very much classical Greek. It's very much epic Greek. It's archaic Greek. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's an older, formal, well-structured, polite Greek. It doesn't have, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not colloquial as much. It's not as, as uh, you know, it, it ain't got ain't in it. It doesn't have everyday parlance. The New Testament wasn't written that way. The New Testament, by and large, is written in the everyday Greek that people all over the world would speak. It's in common language. That divide is something that Greek scholars can tell. It takes about that third year of Greek class before it really kicks in, but you can read the difference. And so, the reason I point all this out is because Luke, Luke's rather unique. Old Dr. Luke wrote in epic Greek just as much as everyday Greek. Dr. Luke has a vocabulary that's much richer than the rest of the New Testament writers. The only person who comes close to Luke in the beauty of his Greek 
and in the richness of his language is Brother Paul, who was also born outside of Israel in Tarsus, where one of the major things of Tarsus was the schooling and education system. They exported scholars from Tarsus. Paul writes good Greek, but Luke's Greek is just, I mean, it's just phenomenal. And it's so fascinating. Now, understand, one of the ways good Greek writers would write is they would fall into whatever culture or pattern they were writing about. So a good Greek scholar would be able to, it'd be like you're watching the Discovery Channel. And the narrator is speaking such pristine English. Almost sounds like might be from England. But then periodically would interview somebody from Lubbock. And when interviewing somebody from Lubbock, all of a sudden you'd start hearing the talk in a whole different manner. Because it's more important to talk right if you're from Lubbock, not uppity. They don't even use the word uppity in England. Unless you're looking uppity. That's what they think looking uppity means. We know looking uppity means wearing clothes that's just a bit high for your station. The difference in that? Luke will chart. When Luke's quoting a speech that someone's given, that Peter's given, he'll quote it in the way Peter would have said it. Luke's an amazing writer. Luke, the first four verses of Luke 1, I've told you earlier in this series, is one sentence. And it's maybe the prettiest Greek sentence in the entire New Testament in terms of just beautiful Greek. Because Luke's able to do both things. He's able to write epic. He's able to write koine. 70% of the words that Luke uses, you'll find in the New Testament. But 30% of the words Luke uses... Nobody else in the New Testament even uses. His vocabulary is so rich. Now, why does this matter at all? Well, it matters because Luke was not just some slipshot idiot putting together a gospel. He was a brilliant, smart, well-trained doctor who understood and knew nuance and precision and accuracy. And his writings reflect it. When we read the Gospel of Luke, we're not reading the Gospel of some guy who just thought, hey, I'm going to put something down so that people will have it. Maybe it'll sell. We're reading the very careful, parsed work of a scholar par excellence. Someone well-trained in what they are doing. I was riding on an airplane yesterday and uh, the fellow sitting next to me uh, uh, noticed I was working on Sunday school lessons. You know, this last one that y'all have had now for three weeks in a row, the 28 pages, wait till you see what you get next week. I've had three weeks. No. Um, said, uh, what are you doing? And I told him. He said, well, what do you think about, uh, why is Luke's stuff sometimes different than Matthew's and Mark's. I said, well, you need to come to class. Said, We've talked about that. I said, I'll tell you one thing in a nutshell, though. It's not because Luke was an idiot who couldn't figure it out. 
Luke clearly had Mark's gospel in front of him when he wrote. He clearly had notes of Matthew when he wrote. It's not that he was sitting there saying, Hey, I can't count. Is that two or three people there at the tomb? I think that may be two. And he just makes typos and makes idiot stupid mistakes. No, the man, uh, totally apart from inspiration... Just as a person, without even the hand of God, Luke clearly is very, very brilliant and careful. You add inspiration to it, and you get the most majestic gospel. Let me give you an example. Do you remember, let's go to the Elmo for a moment, if we could. Some of you were not in the class when we've talked about chiasms. Many of you are. Chiasms. Let's see, boom, boom, chiasms. From the Greek letter, he... The idea of a chiasm is, and that's the Greek letter, key. The idea of a chiasm is something that starts here and builds to a center point. And then goes back out from the center point in a way that reminds you of the way it went in. Here's a simple example of a chiasm. I came to church... Oops. I came to church. We worshipped. I went home. Now that's a chiasm. It starts in one place, builds to a point, and it comes back out. If you Testament series, we first dealt with this with the Tower of Babel story. It's written as a chiasm. The reason they wrote this way back in antiquity is to emphasize the middle. It arrows to the center of the story. So if I gave you this in a chiasm, I came to church, we worshipped, I went home, I would be telling you the most important thing out of all of that is we worshipped because it's in the center. You with me? Now Luke wrote Two volumes, if we go back to the PowerPoint. He wrote Luke and Acts together. They're in two different books because they only had 25-foot scrolls and he ran out of scroll room at the end of Luke. But it's very carefully crafted. And there are many chiasms in it, but the entire Luke-Acts is a chiasm. Let me show you what I mean. Luke is the one who starts out and doesn't simply say Jesus was born. He says, in the blank year of Caesar Augustus. And he puts, who had issued a a, a, um, census to be taken. Luke puts the birth of Jesus within the context of the Roman world. You with me? Now, if you keep reading through Luke... He then moves to Jesus' teaching. But he's got Jesus teaching first in Galilee. And Luke's the one, not Matthew, not Mark. Luke's the one who makes it a point for us to all know that Gentiles were there hearing Jesus preach. In Luke's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not simply surrounded by people, a crowd, as Matthew calls them. But Luke makes it a point that you know, from including people from Tyre and Sidon which were Phoenician Gentile lands. So we've got Jesus' birth in the context of the Roman world. Jesus is 
teaching in Galilee with Gentiles. And then Jesus moves down and starts teaching in Samaria and Judea. Samaria being the region south of Galilee, but north of Jerusalem and Judea. So he moves down towards Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem as he preaches in Samaria, Judea. Then Luke takes us to Jesus actually in Jerusalem. And it's Jesus in Jerusalem, finally, when Luke tells us about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. And that's the end of Acts, I mean the end of Luke, and the beginning of Acts. And look what happens as he continues. Then you have the story of the church in Jerusalem. Do you see how we're tracking back out in the chiasm? And then the church spreads. Where does it spread? It spreads throughout Samaria and Judea. Luke's words. And then what happens next? Paul and others start going out and you now have apostolic teaching among the Gentiles. And then Acts ends with Paul preaching in Rome, there appealing to Caesar. And you're back within the context of Roman rule. What you have is a beautiful chiasm in the way these two books go together. Do you see it? I've tried to color. Jesus' birth in the Roman world, Paul's preaching in the Roman world. Jesus teaching in Galilee with Gentiles, the apostles teaching in, uh, in, uh, among the Gentiles. Jesus in Samaria and Judea, the church in Samaria and Judea. Jesus in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. Now the chiasm is to draw our attention to the most important part of the writing. And what is it? Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended with a promise he would come again. And that's the center. It's not just the center of Luke in terms of where the events happened, but Luke does the same thing with crowds. See, at the beginning, you've got Jesus being born. You have myriads of angels, countless angels, heavenly hosts in the sky singing glory to God in the highest. Then as Jesus uh, uh, begins his ministry, all of, of Israel's out to hear him. You've got the great crowds. You've got the, the people from Tyre and Sidon, massive crowds. As Jesus continues to preach, you see those crowds winnow down. When Jesus starts saying, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. When Jesus starts giving some really harsh teaching, the crowds winnow out. The persecution starts. And you reach a point where finally Jesus is crucified on a cross basically alone. Peter has fled. There are some women watching and a few Roman soldiers. And then Jesus is laid alone in the tomb. But that tomb is empty. And from there, just as the chiasm built from crowds down to Jesus alone, it expands back out. And so you've got Jesus appearing, or the angel first, just to the women that were the same women that were at the cross. You've got that chiasm. And then all of a sudden, the apostles that were the apostles Jesus was with before he, he was dead, uh, 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 before he was betrayed. And it expands the same way. And then you've got the church with 3,000 being added. And then you've got the spread of Christianity until by the end, it's throughout the world. It's this beautiful writing of Luke. You with me? It's magnificent. Magnificent. When you read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, you're reading something really special. Now, that's one point. 
brand new point. If you fell asleep, time to wake up. You'd get a fresh start. If we ran commercials in this class, we'd have one right now. Luke, Dr. Luke, added some parables. Now, I've told you before in this class that I'm convinced the parables of Matthew and the teachings that Matthew added to Mark's came from notes Matthew kept, made and kept, during the ministry of Jesus. These would have been among the parchments and papers that Paul would have had a copy of. Paul said to Timothy, please bring me my parchments and my my papers. But in addition to that, Luke says he didn't just get eyewitness material from the preachers and the apostles. He also went back and interviewed other people. And so Luke is able to add some parables from his interviews and his work that we don't get in the other Gospels. And that's a good thing. I'm not going to go through all of them here. I've put all of them in your paper. We don't have time for that. But I want to pull out a couple of things that, that remind us of a theme that we have in Luke. If you were here last week, you might recall, I talked about how Luke says that Jesus was turning the world upside down. In Luke, more than anywhere else, we read about Jesus saying the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be made low. It's in Luke that the first will be last and the last will be first. It's in Luke that John the Baptist says, hey, to his messengers, send the messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus' reply, instead of simply being yes, is tell them, lame walk, blind see, deaf hear. The world's being turned upside down by Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, the world's really being turned right side up. Because it was man and sin that turned it upside down. It's man and sin that values things askew, wrongly. It's man and sin that, that, that distorts. Jesus came to turn the world right side up. And you'll see that theme in many of the parables of Jesus. So let's look. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That parable is only told by Luke. And I suspect as Luke identified it with the lawyer who came and wanted to question Jesus and ask, who's my neighbor? Luke had interviewed the lawyer. That lawyer was around. Luke doesn't name the lawyer. Who wants to name a lawyer? But Luke identifies him such that you could find... And and Luke hears the story. And Luke tells the story. Can you imagine what the lawyer... uh, Luke's there over lunch saying... It's a connection group. Luke's there at the connection group. Says to the lawyer, says, uh, so... uh, uh, Where did you meet Jesus? Tell me about your encounter. Well, I was trying to justify myself. I wanted Jesus to know that I'm a righteous man too. That I should be walking with him. You know, you never know when you're going to need a righteous lawyer. And so I went up to Jesus to, to justify myself. And, 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 and Jesus said to me, hey, if you want to be justified, then you better love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm a lawyer, so I was parsing words with him. Well, who's my neighbor? Are we going three houses or four? Because I like people three houses over. It's that fourth house where they're driving me crazy. Those Maoris. <laughs> and um, so, so Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. 
And he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's this fella traveling down the road. He gets set upon by robbers. He gets beaten. He gets left for rot. And the Levite comes by and does nothing. And the priest comes by and does nothing. It's a Samaritan that nobody ever wants to deal with, that nobody likes, that everybody thinks is polluted, that everybody views as sinful, distasteful, and the reason that God should judge the world and condemn everyone. It's the Samaritan who said, Hey, I'm sorry you're hurt. Binds up his wounds, puts him on his horse, takes him to an inn, pays for his medical care, pays for him to get better, and promises to do follow-up and come back and check on him and make good on any necessary bill. Jesus said, who's the neighbor? The lawyer may be stupid, but he's not dumb. He says, the Samaritan. And Jesus says, go thou and do likewise. See, Jesus is turning the world right side. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect. You get other parables from Luke, you don't get anywhere else. How about Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man, who probably thinks he earned his riches, maybe inherited his riches, but they're rightfully his. The rich man's enjoying the fruits of his capitalism, while the poor Lazarus is there eating crumbs, begging for crumbs, getting nothing except dogs to lick his sores. Both die, and Jesus turns the world right side up. Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man is toast. The rich man is the one saying, Hey, hey, uh, Abraham, go warn my brothers we're doing it wrong. Abraham says, why do I need to do that? I mean, they got the prophets. They got everybody. They got, all the, they got all the warning anybody needs. Well, just, just, just please. And Abraham says, you know, if someone came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. Now, isn't it interesting? This is the only parable of Jesus that names one of the characters. Lazarus. Now, if you lived in Luke's day, you could have gone back and heard about this. But otherwise, wit would be totally lost on us if John had not written his gospel and told us that Jesus had actually resurrected a man named Lazarus. So it's very fitting. Lazarus doesn't need to come back in the parable and tell him because someone could be raised from the dead named Lazarus and people still won't believe. Luke's got this wonderful way of showing that Jesus is turning the world upside down. Things are being different. There's the parable of the friend at night. How am I doing time-wise? I don't have time to tell you this parable, but it's a really good parable. All right, here's the friend at night. Friend and I, this is a short one. It's a really short one. 11, 5 through 8. Jesus says to him, let's pop it up here. All right. Jesus says to him, which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say, hey, lend me three loaves. Somebody's just dropped in and I don't have any food. Now, is someone from inside going to say, shut up, guy. You're bothering me. The door's shut. My children are with me in bed. I'm not getting up and giving you squat. I tell you, I tell you, he's not going to do that. He's going to get up and give him, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, 
just because of his impudence, he's going to rise and give him whatever he needs. That word for impudence means um, um, audacity. Uh, It means uh, uh, just because he's so gutsy. I mean, who's going to like knock? I mean, you're just going to be like, I can't believe the guy's knocking on the door at midnight. Becky, get up and give him some bread. And then he says, I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. How much more, let's go back to this. How much more is God going to meet your needs? How much more will God meet the needs of his children who are asking? Don't think it impudent. Don't think it improvident. Don't think it. You lay your needs before God your Father. And this is, these are parables we get only from Jesus. The rich fool who puts, builds his barns and gets everything filled up. Yeehaw! I've got it made. My 401k is in place. I've got an annuity. I'm going to collect all the money I need. I am going to live the rest of my life comfort and ease. Not knowing that the rest of his life is probably about six hours. And Jesus is teaching, establish your priorities right. See, turn the world right side up. You've got the wrong priorities. If you're living your life trying to make sure that you've taken care of all of your physical needs for the rest of your life, then you've totally missed Jesus saying, just make sure each day you pray for your daily bread. Because God's going to take care of you day by day by day. You get your priorities straight. This is Luke saying Jesus is turning the world right side up. Look at the next one. In chapter 14, he has two banquet stories. I love the banquet stories. Mainly because they have food. Uh, If we could go to the Elmo. Here's the first one. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor. And you see, Jesus is at an event. And the, the people who are feeling popular and feeling important go in and take the key seats. The people who are a little bashful, feeling not too valuable, a little nervous, do I even belong? They're kind of laying back and just taking the corner seats. That's the normal course of things. You have a dinner, you'll see it. You go to a function at an event, you'll see it. I was at a hearing where the judge was going to have to do a beauty contest between a hundred lawyers... To decide who was going to lead this national piece of litigation. Judge, son of a Baptist preacher. And you go into the courtroom and all the lawyers, we're there hours early. Jockeying. For a position of notoriety. And you got two counsel tables. Then you got the jury box. Then you have all the pews in the back. And I mean, lawyers are everywhere. But you want to know what filled up first? Counsel table. Anything with a good visual to the judge fills up first. And the judge walks out, and he knows he's conducting a beauty pageant. He knows he's got to pick some lawyers to lead. And the first thing he says is he looks at that front table, right dead front in front of him, center chair. And he looked at that lawyer and he said, so why would you choose to sit right there? That lawyer's not leading the litigation. He'd have done better on the back row. 
Jesus is saying, turn the world upside down. When you go to something, sit on the back row. Do you know how much better it would be for someone to come up to you and say, hey, man, time, no, you belong over here. You're Bob Euchre. Must be on the front row. Get yourself over here. That's Jesus teaching the world's upside down. He says, when you're having a party, don't just invite the, the bon vivants, the, 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 the famous, the, the ones that are valuable. You invite the ones that nobody sees value in, and then you're inviting the ones that God sees value in. He's turning the world right side up. It's a whole different world. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Aside from the banquets, how about the Pharisee and the tax collector? This is David Fleming's sermon this morning. The Pharisee is the one who's there, goes to prayer time. Puts in his tithe. Hey, I'm here to pray to you, Lord God Almighty. Then there's the sinful tax collector. Who's probably been cheating people if he's anything like the IRS. He can't even look up. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says... Which one's righteous? The tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or the Pharisee says, oh God, thank you. Thank you. I praise you, God, that I'm not like that poor idiot over there, sinful tax collector. (laughs) Thank you for making me so righteous. Which one goes justified? Jesus turns the world right side up. It's the tax collector. So what do we have? We have great parables. We have Luke talking about the mission of Jesus in a different way. Luke has Jesus saving the world. Often again with that same theme of Jesus turning the world right. Luke's the one who found Zacchaeus and learned the story about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Who was a short fella. I got a friend named Larry Boyd. We were talking about basketball the other day. And I asked him, did you play basketball? He said, yes. He said, but my coach told me I wasn't going to get much playing time in in middle school. I said, really? He says, yeah. He looked at me and said, Larry, you're short, but you're slow. (laughs) That was Zacchaeus. He was not going to get much playing time. He was short. He hears Jesus is coming. He can't see over everybody. He just wants to see this guy. So he climbs up in the sycamore tree. Jesus is walking by. And Jesus stops and looks up and says, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus, okay. And he's converted. He's touched. He says, everybody, I've cheated. I'm I'm giving them back everything I cheated and more with interest. I'm going to be a different person. You've changed my life. This is a story Luke gets. And he tells you it's Zacchaeus because he knows he wants you, if you were alive then, to go back and hear it from Zacchaeus yourself. Jesus turns the world upside down and he saves the world. Jesus will reach out in Luke's gospel to people of any race. He's not as concerned about dealing with the Jewish concerns that Matthew is. He wants everyone to see that Jesus was open to all. 
Last point. Jesus gives us the thalmazo. The thalmazo of the resurrection. Luke has the road to Emmaus story. By the way, a chiasm if you want to sort through it. In fact, the post-resurrection time period of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is a chiasm. Where the emphasis is Jesus revealing who he was. But aside from that, you've got Luke 24. And in verse 12, you've got Luke using this really cool word. Let me find Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 12. If we could go to the Elmo, please. All right. Peter's just heard from the women the tomb was empty. And verse 12, Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb. He stoops. You got to go down. He looks in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. He went home thalmazoing at what had happened. This word marveling. Now the word marveling is translated marveling. What it really means is to have a strong internal reaction. It might be one of amazement and wonder and joy. And it might also be one of, ugh. It basically is referencing a strong gut reaction. You with me? You don't know except by reading the context whether it's a positive gut reaction or a negative one. You just know it's a strong reaction. You get the context to tell you what kind. Well, we have the road to Emmaus story after that. And then Jesus comes and appears to his disciples in Jerusalem following the Emmaus story. And when he comes to them, they're talking about the fact that that Jesus has been making these appearances. Jesus himself stood among them, said, peace to you. They're startled. They're scared. They think they see a spirit. He said, why are you startled and scared? Why do doubts arise? See my hands, see my feet. Touch me, see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. He showed them his hands where his nails were. Showed them his feet where the nails were. While they're still disbelieving for joy, they're marveling. Same word. They're they're having this strong internal reaction. He says, okay, fine. Just give me some food. I'll eat it in front of you. You'll see it works. This is a real body. A real resurrection body. Don't have any doubt in your mind. They're thalmas. They're having a strong interaction to Jesus. And that's, that's the beauty that Luke brings to, some of the beauty that Luke brings to this story. Luke gives us a fullness that others don't. And that brings us to points for home. Thalmazo. There is a strong internal reaction. It can be one of joy. It can be one of stunned amazement. You might marvel. You might shun, but everyone's going to have a reaction to the resurrected Jesus. And my question for me is, what's mine? What is my reaction going to be to the resurrected Christ? If you go back and look at Luke as a chiasm, in the center of the chiasm we have Jesus crucified, we have Jesus resurrected. That's the center of the story because it's the center of concern and it's the center of human history. 
It is what it's all about. It is the crux of the matter. I want to make Christ the center of my life. I want it to be what matters. I was talking to another fellow on the airplane. Other fellow was very honest with me. He said, you know, I don't trust anybody who says they're a Christian. If they really say it hard. I trust the subtle ones. I trust a few I've gotten to know. But in general, someone says they're a Christian. Yeah, right. I want my life to be one where Jesus Christ shows in the center of who I am, in what I say, in what I do, whether it's public or private, in my family or all by myself in a hotel room. I want Jesus Christ to be the center of what I am about in my life. I want to live my life in the chiasm of Luke and Acts. Last point for home. The Pharisee, thank you God, I'm not like that sinner. I fear all too often we say, thank you God that we're not like that Pharisee. I don't want to be that way. As much as I want Christ to be the center of my life, He is the center of my life. But any good that I do, it is Him doing it through me. May it never go to my head as God works in and, and, and often in spite of me. But he does something good through this raggedy tag being. May I never for a moment take any confidence that it's anything other than the Lord God Almighty who can even make a donkey speak. Who can take a stick in the hand of Moses and change the Nile and part the sea and bring water from the rock. And if he's doing something good with me, I don't ever want to think I'm any better than just a stick. Because it is God who is doing it. Make sense? Amen. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for raising up in history not only those who provided Scripture for us by your Holy Spirit, but also the many family, friends, teachers who have gone to so much trouble to make sure that we have a chance to hear your good news and learn who you are. May we continue to tell the stories of your saving grace and join you in turning the world right side up to your glory, by your strength, and in your wisdom. In Jesus we pray, amen.